which is Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, 1 through, 1 through 9. Now, of course, I, I'm cutting off. There's much in the chapter that, that I could say, talk about. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may, multi that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and you walk, down, walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'm going to stop right there. This is... Uh, this passage contains the, the great Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. This is the great creed of the Old Testament. And uh, as far as I know, and um, if you're to look at my, it's the only passage in the, in the Hebrew Testament where you can tell by the orthography that this is special. What, what happens in the great Shema is that the, the last letter, the first word, the last letter of the, the last word in the great Shema, and that's, by the way, the first word of, of, of this great creedal statement, um, is, is at a bigger pitch. So if you look, you know, all the other Hebrew letters are at the same pitch, right? And then all of a sudden, in the great Shema, you have these two letters, the first and last word, in bigger pitch. And so, so this is the, the great creed. Um, and and hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there's a lot of things I could say about that. And then the next verse, of course, is very important also. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then you see um, this, this idea that, that the Lord's word is to be taught and heard continually throughout the day. We don't have a ghetto of Sunday morning uh, to hear the Lord's word. You don't have, um, like, well, maybe I'll just have a daily devotion, which if, if every member did that, I would be very pleased. But rather the Lord's word is to be permeating our day and to be taught, especially by parents, to their sons, as you see earlier in the text, and their sons' sons, so that it would be passed down generation after generation. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, okay? Any questions or comments? So I, I think it's just very, very important to see this. And the book of Deuteronomy itself is extremely important. Uh, the, the, the name Deuteronomy comes from Latin, but Deutero is second, and the Namas, which is law, okay? Um, or is that Greek? I don't know. You know, I can't remember, which is... Uh, I, help me. So it's a... No, I think it's, like, it's Greek, yeah. It's, it's Greek, yeah. So much so for my languages, right? So, um, so then, then we have um, this other passage is repeated several times in the Old Testament. Now, some people might say that this actually is the great creed of the Old Testament, but it's certain creed on its form. So Exodus 34, verse 1. Exodus 34, verse 1. Exodus 34, verse 1. 
verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord God passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so, slow to anger, and the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So our Lord is, uh, um, because he's merciful and gracious, he's long to anger, and then he's abounding in steadfast love. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. This is repeated. I have all the passages repeated. And then there are several other passages in the Old Testament where, where the, the, the language is approximating that, but this is the ones where it's, it's, it's pretty much repeated. Okay? And, of course, we, we are familiar with this because we hear this in what season the church here. What, where do we hear this passage repeated in the liturgy during the church year? Lent. Lent. It's, it, it's, it's Lent um, in um, the Joel, and it's using the Joel 2.13 passage we, we repeat during Lent. Now, there's an extremely significant passage in the Old Testament is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, and by the way, it's a whole other issue is who's got the, the number right. Have you ever been with, uh, um, with some uh, evangelicals and you start saying the Ten Commandments and they don't say the same numbers that we do? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, I just remember growing up in Baptist territory and uh, we got into an argument, my Baptist friends and I, so I went out and pulled out my catechism. Then they went out and pulled out their, their Bible, but what they did is pulled out the center of their Bible, but which publishing house did that, Right? And so, and by the way, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, then um, you notice that the editors of the ESV um, do something different in, in this, and they set off um, all these passages so that, that the numbering of them um, does, not, does not match our numbering. But then again, that's an editorial decision, not a, a decision from the Hebrew Bible, by the way, okay? So, um, um, we follow the ordering that was pa passed down, it was common in the Roman Catholic Church historically, okay? Um, now it's very interesting, this leads into the study, that, that actually, um, according to the rabbis, they speak about the ten words, and they would actually put verse one of, of, um, of Exodus 20 as the very first word, and then leading into verse three. So, so Exodus 20 starts this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And, and then it keeps on going until you get through verse 17. Um, all these, all the Ten Commandments, okay? And so, and so this preface is very good because it's on the basis of God making Israel his people and rescuing them. Now he gives these commandments. Okay, and so, so you follow these commandments because he is what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, and that's, that's very, very helpful. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, so these are some important Old Testament passages that, that, that I just wanted to cover um, that I did not cover two weeks ago. Okay, we had a question. Um, I think Aaron, you asked this question. Why are the order of the Hebrew Bible different than, the, than our English Bible? Um, the simple explanation is that, is that during 
okay, during the diaspora, in other words, after the fall of Jerusalem, Jews scattered throughout the ancient world. Many of them scattered to Alexandria. You can tell by the name of the city that it was founded by Greeks. And so the prime language of God's people in Alexandria became Greek. And so they translated the, the Hebrew Old Testament into, into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Septuagint is hugely important because quite often in the New Testament, the, the background of passages quoted in the New Testament is the Septuagint. Not exclusively, but quite often that's the case. Septuagint is Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in that translation, this is what we roughly have the order of our, of our books of the Bible in the Old Testament is Septuagint. And then, of course, Septuagint, um, you know, becomes... Uh, widely known and obviously because it's not Hebrew and, and, and the church overall loses Hebrew as a language very quickly because Koine Greek is very, very common. And so that's where we get the books of the Old Testament. It's, it's in our order, is from the Septuagint. Okay? Now, by the way, pretty much a lot of stuff like that, you don't have to know to be saved, okay? Okay? And likewise, when we get into the canon of the New Testament, you do not have to know everything I'm going to talk about to be saved. But it is important to understand that, that, that we as Christians have been given minds and that we use them for the sake of the gospel. And this is one reason, for example, we can engage in apologetics. Give a little um, plug also for uh, uh, Dr. Francisco's part of a podcast called Thinking Fellows, and they'll quite often deal with apologetics issues. There's several other uh, podcasts. I, I don't know. Adam, do you, what other podcasts are really good on apologetics, or don't you really listen to, the, to other apologetics podcasts, or anything else from 1570, or you guys cover it in, on your podcast, I know. There's a whole bunch out there. Yeah, yeah, and there's, so, so, so in other words, as Christians, we do not have to say, oh, I just believe the Bible, and would check my mind at the door. Just the opposite. God has given us our, our minds for the service of him and his kingdom, and that includes others. And so we're going to go into um, the canon of the New Testament. Um, before we begin, any questions, comments? Yes, Rich. Yes. Yes. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, in the Catechism, we have um, kind of Luther reflecting this kind of same theology of Deuteronomy. How do we begin the day? When you wake up, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's Prayer. Then if you uh, choose, you may also say the following. In other words, it becomes optional. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. Okay, and then you, then you say the concluding collect. By the way, I love the concluding collect, but it is not the necessary part of the morning prayer. The necessary part is the cross, the, the, the baptismal formula, the name that which we're baptized into, the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, okay? Um, but at the end of it, then you may go about your day singing a hymn of the of the of the Ten Commandments or other such hymn, right? In other words, in other words, you, you, you don't have just a morning devotion, now you put aside everything, but rather I go through permeated by the Lord's word throughout the day, 
Um, and likewise, then Luther would, would speak about praying before the meal and after the meal. There's two more times, so it ends up being six more prayers during the day, and then closing the day with the evening prayer, which again returns us to our baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Neither are standing, creed and Lord's Prayer. Then if you choose, you may also say, and then the concluding collect. So our day is to be permeated with who we are, which is God's child in our baptism. So thank you very much, Rich. And I, I, think, and I think a lot of times the, the morning prayer and the structure of the morning and evening prayer has been overlooked, and the combination of the two, as well as the, the prayers before meals and after meals, the, the, the structure has been overlooked as far as our day. And, and Luther definitely is concerned about the day-to-day life of the baptized in Christ. And this is the, the nature of the catechism. So I, I would commend that to you. Um, okay. So I asked the, the question, how much of the Kool-Aid have we drunk also? This the Kool-Aid of putting reason above the Lord. Um, and so oftentimes we speak about the canon of the New Testament, we speak about criteria, right? You know, on what basis do we judge a book to be the word of Christ, right? Okay, well, what's the problem with that? Is this the magisterial use of reason? In other words, we're putting our reason above Scripture. So, and then we've really fallen into the, to the trap of the Enlightenment, okay? Um, where we're basically saying that, that, that reason is separated from God and His Word, and my reason becomes superior to the word, okay? And so, so we never say, you know, this is the criteria in which we judge the canon, right? It's, it's rather, um, how does the canon unfold for us? And we see it unfolding in God's people. Uh, and, and I reminded, um, I, I reminded uh, uh, Dwight to, to give me a Bible verse that I was supposed to include in your outline, but John 10, 27. John 10, 27, uh, this marvelous word. Um, um, John 10, 27. Um, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. In other words, we are Christ's sheep, and we hear his voice, and Christ will give us his clear voice because he is concerned about his sheep. He is the good shepherd. Okay, and so... Um, so the object in speaking about the canon is not that we're going to be able, using Pastor Schumacher and his feeble mind, to out-argue Bart Ehrman, okay? Um, I know no one here knows the name Bart Ehrman, you know? Uh, yeah, so Tom, Tom does. So Bart Ehrman teaches at the University of North Carolina. Have you ever seen, like, these, these things you can buy online, great courses? Ever seen this? You can buy great courses on a whole lot of things. Well, if you will note, like, the introduction to the New Testament, it's this guy out of North Carolina, and he's a really radical guy about doubting everything about Christianity. Uh, his name's Bart Ehrman. And, um, and you're not going to be able to out-argue Bart Ehrman or others who, who, who start from the premise of, of thinking there's no miracles, therefore... Uh, there's no such thing as predictive prophecy. Therefore, you can't be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I mean, in other words, this whole line, they, 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 those aren't even categories for them, so you aren't going to be able to ar- out-argue the, the skeptic. However, the other side is, is we don't need to be afraid of those who just say, well, you Christians, all you did was make up your own canon, and, and they, they know nothing about the historical um, uh, unfolding of Scripture, nor of the internal testimony of Scripture, 
And, and also, we need to trust that, that the same Lord who would die for us on the cross would, in the same chapter, of, of, in the same book of John, promise the Holy Spirit who would bring to mind all that I have said to you. John chapter 14. Okay, so um, just as we talked about the canon of the Old Testament, that largely speaking, uh, the, the canon was just there. They knew what the Word of God was. There was no big Jewish council to say, this, 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 no, not this, not this, not this. They just knew what was the Word of God. So likewise, really, it's the same process in the New Testament. Okay? So, um, so I'm going to start out by talking about that the Old and New Testament are speak about a God who makes covenants with his people, and he redeems and makes a people. God is gracious and merciful to save sinful mankind, going back to that passage in Exodus chapter 34. And, and he is consistent. We only have one God, the same God, Old Testament and New Testament. This is very, very important in Lutheran theology. We do not believe in dispensational theology that God deals with us differently in different epochs of time. We believe that God, to the fallen humanity, Adam and Eve, promised a savior. And we talked about that two weeks ago, where Eve mistakenly thought her son Cain was God in the flesh. Okay, so it's, God is consistent. So God makes a covenant with his people. He gives the covenant, the, the land, offspring, and will bless all nations with the Messiah to Abraham. And then he gives the Mosaic covenant that we looked at just a few minutes ago, where I have rescued you, here's, since I have rescued you, here's how you're to be my people. Have no other gods. Do not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. This is how we are your people as, it, as, as those who've received your covenant. Okay? And so God redeems his people and saves them and brings them to his promised land. By the way, that person is Joshua. Same name as Jesus in, in Hebrew. And so God as Lord has his written word to his people. Moses who leads his people out, gives them the Torah, the five books, the Pentateuch is also another name, name for that. Now God has given us a new covenant in his, in his son, Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 31, I will have a new covenant and I'll write my, my law on their hearts. And remember with the words of the, of the, of the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is the new covenant, a new testament in my blood. So there's a new covenant in Christ Jesus. And God redeems his people through Christ Jesus. And so, quite naturally, God would have his word written down, just like he did with the first covenant. And then also the first covenant, he also had his prophets to further give his word and, and drawing from that, that covenant with Abraham and with Moses. Likewise, now God will give his word, in other words, the epistles in Revelation, um, have his word written down. There should be an expectation that God would have a written New Testament. An expectation, and God fulfills that because, again, my sheep hear my voice, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And so, since our Lord has ascended, the apostles are no longer with us, we should expect that God would give us a sure word in a lost and fallen world. Okay. Questions, comments?
No questions, no comments. Okay. Okay, so um, now, now my next point is very, very important. It helps us to, to in this area of canonicity. The, the church has always had a canon. It's called the Old Testament, right? Okay, so, so it's never a question for Jesus or the apostles about whether or not there were scriptures. They, all, they already had the Old Testament. So when you speak about the canon of the New Testament, really we're talking about the canon of the Bible, and they already had, um, and depending on your numbering system, I obviously talked about the 22 books, or, the, or, the, or sometimes we break out like, uh, like Judges from uh, Joshua, and then uh, you end up with 24 books, okay? And then you, you, so you have this Hebrew Old Testament already, and if you notice in the Gospels, the disputes of Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees is never over whether or not this is written Word of God. It's just an interpretation of it. And they're both quoting, right? It's very, very ironic. What does Satan do in the temptation? What does Satan do? He quotes the Word of God. He twists it, obviously. But, but to an extent, Satan himself is acknowledging that God would give his word. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that amazing? But of course, he wants to twist it and turn it. And, 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 and that goes really back to the original temptation in the, in the Garden of Eden, where he twists um, the, the word of God, the warning given to, to Adam. Okay? So, once in a while, pastors drink his coffee. So, uh, any questions, comments? Okay. So, so when I use the word canon, the word canon, um, and this is part of the problem, you know, because sometimes we speak about the canon, we're using um, what, what is this exclusive def definition, um, as opposed to, there's three, we use the word canon in three different ways, and this becomes part of the problem, you know, as we deal with this, and by the way, um, it's always irritating. Um, pretty much every Christmas or Easter, you ever see these things like on the History Channel or, or some of this, you know. It used to be that, that uh, when there were such things as, as, as a widespread circulation of magazines, you'd look and see the covers of Time or Newsweek, U.S. News Report, you know, let's find the real Jesus, right? Did you ever remember seeing this stuff? And I, I got really turned off when these hit pieces was put out a few, it's now probably 15, 20 years ago, by the National Geographic. Now, you stick with telling me about green snakes in Madagascar. Don't tell me about the Gospel of Peter, okay? You know, this is, this is not your, 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 your ground. That's not, that's not why I want to even pay attention to National Geographic. But they did a hit piece on, with, I think it's the Gospel of Peter, you know, saying that the church excluded this and all this other stuff. And we'll go, we will go into that. I mean, I, I even said the word Gospel of Peter, but it's, it's just so irrelevant in the history of the canon. It's just, it's just, why are we even paying attention to this? Because the skeptics bring it up to us because they want to think that the church made this stuff up. But, okay, so what do you mean by canon? First of all, the exclusive definition, we have a canon when there's a formal broad consensus over a final closed list of books. On that definition, we don't have a canon until about the fourth century, okay? Okay, so, so quite often, you know, we do have lists of these 27 books in the fourth century. Oh, by the way, we'll talk about later on, maybe not today, but we'll talk later on that we actually have what appears to be a list of 27 books already in the year 250. 
100 to 150 years before so-called the church decided and there was really no decision. For example, we have, you, uh, I will quote to you from, the, from Athanasius' festal letter, which is written in 367 AD. It's not until 30 years later, 397, that you have the very first church council essentially saying these are the 27 books, but everyone knows what the 27 books are long before this. There is no, you know, um, big, you know, what are we going to do with, with this apocryphal epistle or this apocryphal gospel? Oh, we got to kick them out. No, no, no. That never, ever happened, okay? And so, so let's go back. So, so we, yes, go ahead. Keep. So was that the final, was that, that count, was that, that count? I, I see. I no, no, no. What I'm I'm saying is they they didn't really finalize it. They're just saying here's our books. I mean they 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 weren't even deciding that these were the books. They're just saying pretty much here we we do have we know what the scriptures are. And so so there is no momentous time in history where you're pitting the the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas against the other four Gospels, and all of a sudden you know by a 55 to 45 vote, Thomas, you're out. Yeah, that, that never happened in history. Never happened. No one, no one, broadly speaking, ever seriously considered the Gospel of Thomas as a gospel. Okay, the Gospel of Peter is gospel. These are peripheral groups, uh, and, and I don't... If somebody wants to ask me about that, we can go into second-century Gnostic theology, but that's, that's really not... It's just something... So, so there is no time in which they say, you know, we're now because we feel this broad need to finally tell you, they do come out with a decree in 397 that, that acknowledges the 27, but it's really not, it's, it's more of a, of a whimper. I mean, because everyone knows what the 27 books are by that time. This is not a controversial thing, okay? So, but, but we can speak about fourth century, we, this is the 27 books, there's the canon, okay? However, long before the fourth century, we have a functional definition. We have a canon, and by the way, I am borrowing this from this marvelous guy, and I, I, I saw all sorts of questions to be able to formulate good answers for you. Just read this. This is what I do on, on vacation, you know. Uh, the canon revisited, established the origins and authority of the New Testament books and the uh, broad issues of epistemology and historiography, um, and then he gets into this. So Michael Kruger, he even has a blog, if you want to read up on this, his blog is called Canon Fodder. Oh, there you got it. Okay, you got it. Okay, very, very good. Very good. So, so uh, praise God for, for, for you as Christians. Yes, Dave. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 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 The, the, the Roman Catholic Church finalizes... The, the Apocrypha as scripture at the Council of Trent in 15, I think, 64. Okay, and this is a reaction to the Lutherans because, and, 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 other, and other Protestants who would have had just the, what we call the, the 39 books of, of the Old Testament, okay? And so there is no Roman Catholic Church, and by the way, this is, um, they, there is a decision now, here's the books that we believe the, the are in the Bible, um, and there's a council, but you see that's 1564, and they, they include the Apocrypha, and that's mainly a reaction to the Reformation, um, as we talked about, uh, when we talked about the canon of the Old Testament, um, broadly speaking, certainly in the East, 
it was always the books we consider the 39. It's only with Augustine that we, we have the introduction that, that perhaps to consider these apocryphal books, and then there, there becomes widespread use. And by the way, you would find the reading of the Apocrypha in the divine service in Lutheran churches during the time of the Reformation. That was no problem. Um, my, my best parallel to this um, would be, for example, we, we will read, for example, sections of the small catechism in the divine service, right? But we do, do we say that that is part of the Bible? No. And so we, we think the Apocrypha is fine. Uh, it's one of my, my goals, my, 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 my bucket list, is to actually read the whole Apocrypha. You know, I, I'd like to do this. I mean, Luther thought it was quite beneficial. However, at least certain books of the Apocrypha, however, they would not regard that as the part of the canon, as the inspired Holy Spirit-driven Word of God. And so, and so likewise, in the early church, uh, this getting a little ahead of myself, you would find in the divine service, they might read the shepherd of Hermas, but they did not regard that in the same level as the Gospel of Mark or, or the book of Galatians. Okay, so just because a book was read doesn't necessarily mean that it has the same authority, and that's, a, that's another thing. So there's a functional definition. Let's go back to, to this, this, I thought, the functional definition. Um, and they're being used as scripture you know, really rather quickly, even though there's ongoing debate about certain books. So certain books, there is some debate, but, but when you think about their communication system, how, you know, that they did not have what we'd say the collected, you know, you know, big volume of what we call the New Testament. They would have smaller collections at times of the four Gospels or Paul's epistles that, that the church would have even, you know, brought together the New Testament really is a marvel as opposed to thinking that some sort of evil plot by, by um, dead white guys. You know what I mean? This is, a, this is just an incredible. People don't understand the, the difficulties of communication and how, and, and, and we can see that they regarded these books, these 27 books as so precious that they got copied and read and regarded as the word of Christ. So, so a functional definition. There's a canon much earlier than that. I already mentioned that Origen mentions 27 books. And it's in 250, but Origen's not the one who made that up, okay? He already knows, and, and he sees what's being functioning as Scripture in the church of his time. And then there's an ontological definition. In other words, as soon as, depending on how you date the books in the New Testament, but the best way of doing it is, as soon as John puts the final period of the book of Revelation, we have the canon. Just now a matter of, of us recognizing that, that this is the New Testament canon, okay? And so... So, from a divine perspective, um, on that definition, we would have a canon when the final book of the New Testament was written, which would be in the first century. And by the way, once in a while you see, they go, I went to Wikipedia for, for my class, and, and you go to these other sites, and they want to always push the dates back. Why do you want to push dates back? Is for example, if you ever see somebody dating a gospel after 70 AD, do like this, okay? You know, so it's a... Do you know why they do that? What happened in 70 A.D.? Does anyone know what happened in 70 A.D.? The fall of Jerusalem. Jesus in the Gospels predicts the fall of Jerusalem. Not one stone will be left upon another, right? And so therefore, since there is no such thing as predictive prophecy, according to the skeptics, these Gospels aren't the words of Jesus. They have to be written by the church and put these words into the mouth of Jesus. 
Do you see that circular reasoning? They have an a priori criteria. It's talking about a priori criteria. The skeptics have all sorts of criteria that, that doubt the word of God. And then we judge the word of God. And so, so you, you constantly want to date things later and later. The only problem is, what do you do with these ancient Greek manuscripts that, that date really into the first century? We have a few manuscripts like this. Or what do you do with the Didache that quotes the New Testament and it's written probably certainly by, maybe by the year 80? What do you do with this? In other words, let's not look at the evidence, right? Um, but rather a, prior, a priori doubting of the word of God. This is what's happening in, in, in scholarly circles. Um, so, so there's no reason, in fact, there's a, a, a very influential book called, called Redating the New Testament. I've not, I've read some, some um, not really read the book, but read people talk about the book named J.A.T. Robinson, um, who really pushes the dates of all the books. There's no reason not to date the books very, very early. Um, and so he, Robinson would say that you'd even have the book of Revelation written before the year, say, 65 A.D. But at whatever, say, say, but even if you push Revelation out to the year 95 A.D., they're all done. They're all done before the end of the first century. So that's ontological definition. Okay, and get my breath. I don't want to make you swim too much. So any questions or comments so far? Okay. Well, so I, I think it's, what's very helpful <clears throat> is, to, is to think in terms of, of Scripture being God's covenant with his people. And there's this marvelous work by the name of, a, a, there's a, a marvelous guy named George Mendenhall. Mendenhall, I have no idea what his personal faith is, but he did work in the Old Testament on something called Hittite Suzerain Treaties. That sounds really interesting, right? Okay. Well, actually, actually it is. And I, I found the article and I printed it off because I've heard about it all my life. I was very blessed when I was at Concordia and Arbor to actually hear Mendenhall give, give a talk. My, my, uh, um, my Old Testament, uh, um, my professors, actually the funny thing was he, was he was my Greek professor, but he was getting his PhD in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul Robbie brought us over to Michigan when they're having a, 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 a I think a, a regional SBL, Society of Biblical Literature Conference, I actually heard Mendenhall speak. He, got, he wrote this influential paper that says that basically looked at, at covenant forms across the ancient Near East and said that the Old Testament follows the common covenantal form that would have been common in the ancient Near East. And therefore, also, we'd say because the, the New Testament, largely speaking, is, is written um, by Jews, would, we see this there, the same pattern written in the New Testament. So we have a preamble going back to Exodus chapter 20. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so this also preamble, I, the Lord your God, is a preamble. I brought you out of the land of slavery. There's a prologue. Then you have stipulations. Here's what you have to do. Ten commandments, right? Okay. Then provision, deposit, and document, and public reading. You see this in, in the book of Exodus as well as the book of Deuteronomy. List of witnesses. Who witnesses the document? It's very interesting. Um, it's, it's not quite dealing with the, the, the Decalogue, but we see that, for example, at the Jordan River, what does God command Joshua to do? They build a, a little tower of 12 stones on the side, but also in the center of the Jordan River as a witness, right? You know, to, to God's bringing his people into the promised land. 
Now, now this is something called a suzerain and vassal. Suzerain is not a, a word that we use too often, right? Okay, so this is the type treaty that a, say, a king would make with his vassals underneath him. So the king who has the power is making this, so it's not a covenant like, like, um, like we, we regard a sale of a, of a good. In other words, I pay you $20, you give me this product. That's not this, it's the, it's the upper person making a treaty or a covenant with the lower person. So in the Bible, we have the upper person, God, making a covenant with his people. And so this is kind of this uh, covenant form. And so in the New Testament now, or you could say that the, the same Greek word is new covenant, is God is doing this thing. We see the work of Christ. We, we see all that he's done for us. And we see, and then of course, we will also see how we're to live as people. And then it will be written down. This is why I bring this up to you. That, that God makes provision for his Old Testament to be written down, especially the Decalogue and the Torah. And now it should not surprise us that God makes provision for the reading of Scripture. And so we see this, for example, in First and Second Timothy and throughout some of the epistles, that the Scripture is actually read. And we actually have a passage in Second Peter that regards Paul's writings as equal to the Old Testament. Amazing, isn't it? So, okay. Again. Hoping I'm not going too much. Okay. Okay, so, so it's very important, again, that, that we do not think in terms of, of criteria for canonicity, because then that places human logic and a magisterial use over ministerial use a lot. And I, I borrowed, rather we'd, we'd, we should say the attributes of canonicity. Again, I borrowed this term from, from Michael Kruger, but it's also common. I, I read... Um, um, a couple of weeks ago, I read uh, the, the section on the canon in um, Martin Franzman's, uh, is a CPH book about the, it's about the background to the whole of the New Testament. He goes into every, all 27 books, but he also talks about the canon. And this is very much the, the idea of, of, of Martin Franzman that, that, you know, the, the canon, the New Testament was not something the church made, but rather the canon scriptures made the church. God's word creates the church because his word gives life. Okay, so the three attributes of canonicity would be that it has divine qualities. When you read the scriptures, they speak of the Lord. You can tell that this is the word of God and the church regarded these books as the word of God from the very beginning. Um, and, and so later on, I'll talk about that, that there really was almost, there was no, no thoughts about disputing 22 of the 27 books, okay? Um, they just knew these were the Word of God. Even the five, uh, to say that there was some dispute is really not quite correct because or else we wouldn't have them. Um, there were some questions about five books, and we'll go into that a little bit later on. Divine qualities, in other words, this is the Word of God. When you read or you hear, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and apart from Him, nothing was made that has come into being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Does that sound like the Word of God to you? Yes, it does. You know, the, the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and, and if you know Chronicles, you says that the genealogy, the genesis of, of Jesus, uh, son of David, 
son of Abraham, or begotten of, of, of David, begotten of Abraham, in, in Matthew 1.1. And, and, and then, so that you would be, in Luke's prologue, so that you would be, aspele, so that you would be made certain and safe in which you've been catechized, and then he goes into his gospel. They are fully aware that this is the word of God that they're writing down. And these, this word has a divine quality, and, and, uh, and, and this is why we treasure the word of God. Apostolic origins. Um, an apostle is one who is set, sent out as, a, as authoritative. This is huge, huge. And so we see, for example, you know, in John chapter 1, you know, that, you know, Andrew, then Peter, James, and John, we see Jesus coming um, in the other Gospels and choosing, choosing men to be his apostle. And Paul will make a big to-do later on that he is an apostle even though he had at one time persecuted the church. Paul, when he writes his letters, he very firmly, and especially the, the one letter I'd, I'd like to point to because it's so firm because he's got real problems. There's always problems in some of these epistles. But in Galatians, you have the worst problems. So Paul begins this with, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So it's just not me, but the brothers who are with me. To the churches at Galatia, then he goes on, and he has nothing good to say to them because they're forsaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice Paul, he, he calls himself an apostle because he's an official representative. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have this term that, that and Paul's speaking about those in in the office of ministry are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, and this, this very important passage, because this passage has been thrown about just to say that all of you are ambassadors for Christ. No, you're not all ambassadors for Christ. Now, um, how many of you have traveled overseas? You travel overseas or go to a foreign country, yeah, even Canada, you know, or, or Mexico. So, so when you go overseas, you know, um, to an extent, we, we do represent the United States of America, right? But we're not official representative. I always remember, uh, I, was at, uh, I was in Munich on July 4th, 1985. And who else is in Munich on July 4th? It's all these U.S. servicemen. And I'm just glad I looked kind of German because the way they were behaving was, was, would give America a bad name, you know? I was at the Hofbräu house and I wanted to listen to the, the band. Instead, you have a bunch of uh, GIs standing on the tables, totally drunk, singing the Star Spangled Banner, you know? And so I'm just glad I was in the corner. I just looked German enough, and I'm beer bitter, and then get me out of here. So, it's a, so um, okay, so we, we do kind of stand for, you do stand for Christ wherever you are, but you're not an official ambassador. I, as a called and ordained servant of Christ, forgive your sins in the name of the Father, Son, I am an official ambassador, but not in the same way that Paul or Peter or John were. Okay, so apostolic origins. Now you might say, um, what do you do? For, probably the best example is, is the book of Hebrews, and this is part of the issue with Hebrews, because in Hebrews chapter 2, it it's indicates that that, that an apostle is not writing it. However, the book of Hebrews is, is, is part of the apostolic band. In other words, just like in the Gospels, you have Mark and Luke, who are not of the twelve, or they're not apostles, but, but Mark, we know, certainly is the associate of Peter, and Luke is associate of, of Paul, but also probably knew 
knew Peter and James and John and from his time in, 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 the, in Caesarea and, and in the Holy Land. Okay? So we do have non-apostles writing books, but they were part of the apostolic band. In other words, the church understood that they were speaking the same word as the apostles and the word of Christ. Okay. And then, and then three, received by the corporate church. Okay. It's not up to you or I to determine the word of Christ. But rather, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep and the sheep are, are God's church. So we should trust that our Lord Jesus would give to his church his holy word. And, and all these books were meant to be read in public. Um, the idea of, of, of private reading scripture is, a, is, is not primary at the time of Jesus or even the time of the Old Testament, but it's a corporate reading of God's word. This continues on from the, from the Old Testament uh, where you have, for example, Josiah reading the book of Deuteronomy in the sight of all the people. Uh, um, you have, um, you know, other, other examples of that. And so the church would have heard the word of Christ, and so this is recognized. So these are three, the threefold attributes of canonicity. Now, now, the next thing is a quote from Kruger, and I'll read the quote if, if you allow me to. Any questions? Okay, they kind of all work together. What is distinctive about this self-authenticating model, in other words, the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, authenticates itself as the New Testament. Uh, it's not just that has three attributes of canonicity, but the way the three attributes relate to one another. These are not three independent and disconnected qualities that canonical books happen to possess, but each attribute implies and involves the other two. Thus, you cannot really speak of one attribute without, in a sense, speaking to the others. They are all bound together. Divine qualities exist only because a book is produced by an inspired apostolic author. And any book that has an apostolic author, due to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will inevitably contain divine qualities. In addition, any book with divine qualities and apostolic origins will impose itself on the church and via the work of the testimonian of the Holy Spirit be corporately received. If any book is corporately received by the church, then the book must possess the divine qualities that will cause the church to recognize the voice of Christ in it, again through the testimonium. Thus, if a book is examined that has one of these attributes, then that implies that the book also has the other two. Because these attributes imply one another, they work together as a unit. As a web of mutually reinforcing beliefs, the core strength of self-authenticated model canon then is that it's three-dimensional. In other words, that these books, that, that you can't really separate out divine qualities, apostolic origins, and received by the corporate church, that they all work, work together so that we know that this is the word of Christ. A lot to handle, and I, and I don't mean to blow your minds, but, it's, a, but, it's, a, but it's, it's very helpful to think in terms of this is the canon that God has made sure. So if God loves us enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross, to rise again and to send to the right hand of the Father, then God's going to love us enough through the Holy Spirit to inspire the apostles and others to write the words of Christ and to write his word in the epistles and in the book of Revelation and, and the book of Acts to the church, and God will make sure that the church receives it, so the church will rejoice in the voice of the shepherd, because my sheep hear my voice. Okay, and so this is kind of how it, how it works. Well, I've got three minutes here, because I'm going to go through kind of a, a brief way, what I call it, the, how the canon of the New Testament developed kind of, a, kind of chronologically, 
Um, and I'm not going to mention things like the Muratonian fragment and stuff like this. I, I, if you want to know about it, I can, but I think that's just a little bit too much into the weeds, if that's all right. So, so I'm going to go over that next week. Are there other questions? I got like, like um, um, uh, one minute and 50 seconds, so, so I'll answer questions if I can. Yes, Keith, go ahead. Not to. Yeah. 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 Now, their their correspondence though is not to agree on, but it's a reflection of. So, for example, if you read, for example, First Clement. First Clement is written to the Corinthians from Rome. You know, towards the end of the first century, you see all these New Testament quotations already in First Clement. You see an Irenaeus written written a little bit after First Clement, also quoting innumerable books in the New, New Testament. So, so you see evidence like this. Now, when you start talking about actual correspondence, it's going to be a little bit later in time in history, but see, you, you would see, for example, correspondence, and I don't even know that they corresponded on the subject, but, for example, correspondence between Jerome and Augustine, which would be early, you know, about the year 400, and that's, that, but it's much later in our time right now. So, so what you see is, is, is the regarding as the word of God and how they use it. And for instance, the apostolic fathers would have quoted the, the, what we call the New Testament far more often than they quoted the Old Testament. And you see just boku of quotes, but what you do not see being quoted left and right is the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter. The, the, I mean, you don't see this happening at, at, at all. And we're going to go a little bit into that next week, but, but you're not seeing, see, and, and go back, and see, part of our problem is how much the Kool-Aid have you drunk? See, we've been raised in the skeptical day and, day 